to a French Collection podcast, a go-to podcast for everything on France, hosted by me, Annette Charlton. With guests, candid insights into living in France, travel discussions and more, our show will transport you to the land of cheese and croissants. So now let's dive into our next episode. Hi everybody and thank you for joining me again on our, our podcast about France and all things French. It's Annette and well, let's uh, have a talk today together about our life in France and the French resistance. You might have caught me on Facebook or Instagram live on Saturday yesterday where I gave you a little bit of a preview of what would be coming up in today's uh, podcast And I mentioned that if this sort of experience hadn't have happened to us, I probably wouldn't believe it if you had have told me uh, yourself. And uh, so I wanted to share with you, it's part of our French Life series over on the blog. And it's what we experienced when we first moved into France and the first trip there when we arrived with our car, our family, and took possession of our family French holiday home. So, our French life and the French resistance. World War II and the French resistance in Côte d'Amour, Brittany. So that's where our house is, in a little farming village. It's actually in Department 22. So our first trip to our new holiday home was only days after settlement of the property had been completed. And we had planned a full and a varied holiday of purchasing furniture, meeting our neighbours, sightseeing and generally enjoying being in our brand new French holiday home. We decided to fly from Australia because we actually live in Australia, so we're an Australian family and we've bought a French holiday home. So we decided to fly from Australia to Frankfurt in Germany, and then make our way to the house in the region, uh, like I just mentioned, of Côte d'Amour. We were going to sightsee along the way. We're a bit of a car-loving family, and so before we headed to the home, we had planned and we did enjoy. There were trips to the Porsche Museum and a lot of car museums and some sightseeing in Germany before we uh, headed down to the house. So um, we tried to fit in a lot of things into this trip. Making our way to uh, France from Germany, we had to collect, once we got closer to our area, the house keys from the local real estate agent first. The settlement of the property had only uh, just taken place while we were still in Australia and it had settled only about three days, to be honest, before we had booked, we had already had the flights booked. So it was only about three days. We were very close to the wire with the settlement. So it was settled about three days before we all jumped on the plane and um, made our way over there. Our plans were to collect the keys, get into the house, settle in, do the minor renovations, etc. We had some work to do in the attic. A bit more about that on another blog post. And we were getting ready to welcome a bunch of our Australian friends. 
We had family, we had friends, they were all going to come over and join us and we're going to do some sightseeing together. And then part of that plan initially on that first trip was to return to Australia via a stay in Paris and eventually make our way back up to Frankfurt International Airport doing some more exploring in Germany. So we had to hire a car to fit all our stuff. You can imagine we are a family of five, if I uh, haven't mentioned that um, before. You haven't heard that in any of our other podcasts. We are a family of five and we had a lot planned. We had plenty of luggage. We had electrical tools ready to do uh, work on the home. I had some specialty household linen that I had uh, purchased, especially in Australia, to bring over. We had some of the children's favourite toys, I had books for the children and um, we wanted to make it feel like a home as soon as we could so we'd brought quite a few things with us. Paul had been clever and he'd organised the hire of a station wagon from the Frankfurt International Airport. So it was a big car and um, we had hoped that it would fit what we, we needed into it. The vast interior of the station wagon was quickly filled, however, with all our stuff. And I'd said to Paul, you know, well done on you. This is a great choice of vehicle. It was very expensive because we had it for many, many weeks, but we knew it was also going to serve the purpose of, as well as hauling all our luggage everywhere, uh, once we'd got the luggage out and we were at the home, it was going to also transport large renovation materials, gardening, plants, and there was always going to be enough space for the five of us as well um, as a, a passenger if um, if we needed to do so. So the next part, I sort of talk about this as if we were persons of interest in France. Once we'd left Germany and the further west that we headed into France, we noticed the increasing stares of pedestrians and some other drivers towards us. Now, I couldn't work it out. I didn't think that we particularly looked like tourists. I didn't think there was anything that spelt to everybody else from outside the car that we were tourists. Fair enough when we all piled out of the car to get supplies from the boulangerie or we filled up with fuel at the car for petrol pumps and we opened our mouths. I mean, we then told everybody for sure that we were tourists. Um, but otherwise, I mean, what was with all the stairs? I couldn't figure it out. And really, apart from being tourists, we were not doing anything noteworthy. We were not that much different. We were not doing anything illegal. I mean, it continued to intrigue us. It was just so noticeable. So the general interest that we seemed to create uh, turned into even prolonged stairs. So when we bought the house, I'll, I'll just interlude there and let you know it was about 11 years ago. Um, so we, we were having these prolonged stairs and people were even whispering when we parked the car. Um, when we parked in our house driveway for the first time, there were some really big um, stairs coming our way. I mean, what was all this about? With the village life slowing down in winter, our arrival and all our stuff, and of course, pulling down the for sale sign, it did pike the interest of the village inhabitants, and we honestly knew we were being talked about. Word got round to Monsieur Gilles Philippe, our local uh, mayor, and he came around to us on a surprise visit. He was delightful. He welcomed us to his village, and he was visibly over the moon that we were Australians. He was so happy. So Monsieur Gilles Philippe, he couldn't believe that Australians had moved in 
and he proudly took us on a tour of what he used to keep referring to as his village. This involved being taken into the depths of the local church, which is quite huge for being um, in such a tiny village, and he took us up the steeple stairs. We clambered up the tiny stairs to view the village from the bell tower. We viewed the library from the top and we could have we also had uh, a tour of his office. He's the local architect, so he he proudly took us all around his office as well. So during this time, Monsieur Gilles Philippe, he proudly told us of the fierce resistance that local fighters had put up against the Germans who occupied our village. The death of resistance fighters by the German sniper who hid in the exact church bell tower, the enforced occupation of the large home right beside the church of the Nazis, and now and how all the neighbouring woods and the lakes around our home had become the hiding grounds of the highly organised fierce resistance groups. We have a lot of woods around and they harboured all the or many of the of the fighters and the fighters were able to get fresh water from the lakes. It was incredible to us to think that the church bell tower that uh, the mayor had opened up for our family to climb up was the same place that the sniper had climbed only to hide in the huge church bell and then kill resistance fighters from his vantage point. It slowly started to dawn on us and we began to understand that the Second World War was very real for the families living in our village, particularly the older, uh, the older people. And the patriotism that they felt for their country, it still spilt over into the quietly harboured distrust or the distance that they created from anything German. All at once we grasped the problem with our hired car and its German number plates. I mean, I kid you not. The stares, the glances, the whispers we'd experienced the further west we kept travelling suddenly made sense. While it saddened us, we could appreciate the sentiments of the Frenchmen and women who had suffered terribly in the war. And we found it difficult, or they found it possibly difficult to forgive, or if they did forgive, maybe they found it difficult to forget. So we are Australian, we're not English or we're not German. Taking the issue in hand, we told everyone that wanted to listen that we were Australian, not English, because there's still a rivalry going on there, and that we were not German. And it seriously made a difference. It also helped that Monsieur G. Philippe, he loved the fact that we had chosen once again his village, amongst, he said, all the villages in France, to buy our home. And he spread the word locally that we were from Australia. So from that time on, we only experienced warmth and friendliness from our neighbours and the surrounding farmers and uh, other local younger people. Fresh farm eggs and goat's cheese are often delivered to our front door by these generous farmers. For our family, we've also never hired a car from Germany again. We either prefer to arrive directly at Charles de Gaulle Airport and drive or we take what we call the scenic route. We arrive at Heathrow, uh, we spend time in London, we spend some time making our way down south, driving down to Portsmouth, where we catch the overnight ferry, a Brittany Ferries ferry, to St Malo, and we enjoy the evening, and then we have cabin, we sleep overnight along the way, 
we arrive nice and early at San Malo and usually go into the walled city of San Malo to a bakery that's open very early in the morning and grab some breakfast and take a walk around the town ramparts, around the walls, look out to sea. And it's so early that there's usually not too many people around, particularly not tourists. Make our way back to our hire car. And uh, it's only about a one and a half hour drive then from Samalo to our house. So that's what we tend to do now. Our kids are learning more of the history and culture of Brittany every time we visit. And I know that they will be better for it. Most of my children are adults or nearing adulthood now that we've had the home for so long. And I do believe it's, it's been very good for them. Live and learn always is one of our family mantras. And although we were saddened on our first day at our house about the reaction that our hire car did create, honestly, we felt we had no right to judge others who'd experienced what we hadn't. So following on from our experience of our hire car and the French resistance uh, in our area, we'll listen to a word from our sponsor, And then when I come back, I'm going to share with you some rather private family history that does uh, relate to World War II and a reflection on a museum that if you are interested in um, this period in history, it's a great museum to visit in Paris. So I'll be back shortly. And now a word from our sponsor. A French Collection Tours Thinking of visiting France? A French Collection Tours offer inspirational, luxurious, escorted all-woman tours to Paris, Normandy, Brittany and Provence. Imagine seven days with a small group of like-minded women exploring the wonders of France. These fun and exclusive tours focus on culture and art, great food and drink, authentic locations and market trips and boutique shopping. Our French collection tours are perfect to relax and unwind, re-energise and invigorate with everything taken care of for you. Your host, Annette Charlton, has lived part-time in France with her family for over 11 years and knows how to ensure your tour is perfect. Whether it's bucket list items or secret places Annette knows about, you will truly love the Parisian vibe. And if you want to experience Brittany like a local, then walking, quaint towns, beach walks will delight you. Or if the warmth of the south of France appeals to you, then you'll be spoiled amongst the charming villages and ancient sites on a French collection tour. So if you're thinking of travelling to France, take a look at a French collection tours and create your lasting memories while having the time of your life. Find out more at www.afrenchcollection.com Thanks for continuing to keep me company. Let's have a look at the deportation memorial on Ile de la Cité in Paris. Have you visited this memorial? It's called the Memorial de Mater de la Deportation and it is on Ile de la Cité in Paris. It's shortened to the deportation memorial, so we'll refer to it uh, that way throughout the rest of this uh, podcast. So while you might be aware of some of the really big name and famous sites on the island there in Paris, 
It's also home to what I call the lesser known, but it's also really important, the lesser known deportation memorial. This memorial commemorates the 200,000 French citizens that died in Nazi concentration camps. I mean, can you believe it? In World War II, 200,000 French citizens. If you've missed this memorial or you didn't even know about it, I mean, don't be too hard on yourself. It's not always included in walking guides or wildly advertised like its other big name island sites. I mean, you know, there's Notre Dame, there's a Chapelle, there's Marche aux Fleurs. So it has got some pretty stiff competition on that island. However, if you've got time to add it to uh, some of those other things that you might like to see, I'd really recommend a visit to this memorial. I recommend it for a few reasons. It's a memorial to those who have perished. It's a beautiful and sympathetically designed structure. It's educational. It's part of French history. And it's a really thought-provoking experience. The 200,000 French citizens included Jews, political prisoners, homosexuals, gypsies, Jehovah's Witnesses and anyone else considered undesirable. So where is it? Where is this memorial to the martyrs? The museum is mostly below ground. I mean, that could be why you uh, have, have missed it. It's opposite Square Jean. It's on the tip of the island. And look, I easily walk there from uh, the hotel that I stay at on the left bank. The memorial was designed by modernist architect George Henry Pingusson. And it was opened on 12 April 1962 by the President of the Republic at the time, Charles de Gaulle. It's on the site of a previous morgue underneath Notre Dame. I honestly must admit that I only found it when self-exploring the tip of the island and I asked myself, I mean, how come I'd never read or heard about it before? Anyhow, now that I've visited it, let me guide you through it and hopefully encourage you to go and visit it for yourself when you're next in Paris. It was on a bright sunny day that I visited the memorial and I was going from the bright sunlight which was warming the green grass and all the pretty little daisies. Side note here, little white daisies symbolise innocence. And then I was going into the darkness as I descended down the barren steps towards the water level. I could distinctly feel the coolness of the concrete and the stillness of the surrounding space as I descended down into the memorial. I've since heard that security guards are often in place to check bags before you enter but on this occasion there were not. Entering the outside courtyard that is loosely shaped like a triangle, you're confronted with bars and grills with just a hint of the Seine. You can see the water through because you're quite down low because you've walked down those steps through the prison-like bars. Imagine the feeling of seeing the sweet outside world but being unable to reach it. That's the sense it creates. Triangular pavers make up most of the courtyard surface as triangles were the shape of the identification badges that prisoners were forced to wear. So now looking at the interior of the memorial. The photos of the memorial's interior are to be for your personal use only and so out of respect for the uh, deportees, I abide by that request. So if you want to have a look at the uh, full blog post on 
this um, on this topic. I do have it on the blog, but I don't have any photos of the interior because I wish to abide by that request. I do, however, have photos of the outside that you can uh, take a look at. You'll have to visit the memorial yourself to actually witness the interior. I'll describe it for you though as we move from the courtyard into the inner interior. From the outside courtyard, you enter the underground inside. You walk down a narrow hallway and it gives you an idea of how it would feel being forced into darkened imprisonment. It's dark, it's claustrophobic under here and the only light comes from the 200,000 illuminated crystals. Each crystal symbolises a deportee who died in a camp. Taking your attention next is the bright light representing the eternal flame of hope with its circular plaque on the floor. Translating the plaque into English, it reads, They descended into the mouth of the earth and they did not return. Either side of the crypt, two small galleries contain earth from the different camps and ashes brought back from the cremation ovens enshrined in triangular urns. Names and places have been etched into the concrete like sort of rough hand carvings done by prisoners and it was this that I found to be the most emotional part of my visit. There were also a few little alcoves with bars, just plain and simple like the rest of this contemplative uh, memorial. Forgive but never forget. On exiting above you, there is a message that translates, forgive but never forget. Coming back up the steep steps into the sunshine makes your eyes blink and water as prisoners would have done once they were released from their dark holes of confinement in the concentration campgrounds. I also think of the thousands that once were sent into the darkness and never saw the light. They never were able to come out blinking their eyes. They didn't feel the damp grass under their feet or enjoy the simple beauty of flowers again that you can do once you exit the museum. So with a thankfulness and a sombre heart, I reflected on the stark contrast as I ascended and once again enjoyed seeing the daisies smiling in the lush green grass. This well-designed memorial has minimal distraction, minimal effect. Lack of colour, lack of sound, a coolness and an absence of light, which heighten the sense of hopelessness and solitary isolation. This is truly one very well-designed memorial that, without any apparent fanfare, will arouse your emotions and cause you to sympathise with the loss and sadness that surrounds World War II and all wars. So visiting war museums or memorials will always affect people differently. And we will all be drawn or draw something different from the experience. I recall feeling mixed emotions when visiting the Memorial of the Martyrs uh, of the uh, deportation uh, time, knowing it was a tumultuous period and it had long-lasting effects on my Romanian grandma, Nicoletta, and her husband, Austrian-born Otto. My grandmother lived in Berlin during the war until she moved in with her sister-in-law, Mitzi, in safer Dresden to await the imminent birth of her baby and then with her baby she later moved to a farm with her newborn daughter my mum Brigitta. 
My grandfather was forced to join the army and he later spent time in a German POW camp, presumed dead actually, by his sister and wife. A few years later, the family was reunited in Italy and immigrated directly to Australia in June of 1950. My mum can remember her parents bringing one battered leather trunk with them to Australia, which at the time held all their worldly goods. Nicoletta and Otto were forever grateful to be able to immigrate to Australia and they worked three jobs each at a time of trying to forge a new life for their little family. Both my grandparents taught themselves English by reading dictionaries on their bus trips to work, always being grateful for their menial, labour and rather intensive jobs. Even though Otto, my grandfather, had held a prestigious management role in the financial sector prior to compulsorily joining the army. Otto always felt ashamed of being in the army and he felt a misfit for a long time. He especially felt for the Australian families that were still mourning their dead and injured returned soldiers when he came into contact with them in South Australia once he had immigrated there. Whilst Nicoletta would never speak of the war or anything remotely associated with it, Brigitte is more open and has always understood her mother's fierce silence on the topic. Brigitte feels that her mum's experiences and the sights that she saw were too much for her to bear and she's chosen instead to wipe them from her memory and never mention them again. So whilst my family's story doesn't directly reflect the purpose of the memorial, like I said, visiting war memorials or museums will trigger different emotions and memories for each visitor. And these are mine. Forgive but not forget is a powerful statement. I'm very proud of my grandparents' determined efforts to create a new life after the war, and I remember them fondly. So that's two different parts of our French life. One sort of ties in with the other, and I hope that if you're in Paris, you do get the chance to visit that wonderful memorial. And so that brings us to the end of another podcast and our time together. Thanks for listening. I've really enjoyed your company and I look forward to sharing more on France and all things French with you next week. Until then, you can head over to the blog at www.afrenchcollection.com for the full blog post. And so it's a merci from me and a bientôt.